Well, yeah, anyway, my name is Leonora Tegatil, and I grew up participating in some Christian-like traditions and some secular family traditions for Easter, but there was a lot of tradition going on at Easter. So one was the Easter pink dress. And I looked and I looked, but I couldn't find the picture of me like this with the trapezoid smile, you know, with the pink dress. That is one one Easter tradition that little Leonore did not like, did not stand for, but had to do. But there were Easter traditions that I did like. One, for instance, was getting an Easter basket. Did anybody get an Easter basket here today? Raise your hand. I bought you one. You're my kid. Okay, cool. Yeah. Easter baskets. I never complained about peeps. You can buy, this is something you can do with peeps. If you're in a rock and roll band, you can bite the head off and throw it into the crowd, just like Ozzy Osbourne. It makes you look really cool. Also, I never used to complain about getting the hollow, cheap, chalky, maybe chocolate Easter bunny in my basket, right? You get what you get and you don't have a fit. I always liked getting those. And I liked getting those nasty little, they're kind of like malted Easter eggs, the Robin's eggs, right? Those are good. I never complained about those Easter traditions. I also never complained about the Easter tradition of going to Lake Number 4 in Fort Collins with all my big Mexican family, right? And we would hide Easter eggs. I'll tell you, an Easter egg, the real egg, tastes so good with just a little bit of dirt and salt after you found it. So good. Probably full of iron, a little bit of lead. Delish. Steve loves it when I say that word. All right. And who can forget cascaras? Does anyone know what those are? Melinda has it in her head. Right. We used to get a real egg, and this is nasty, but it's worth it. You make a little hole in the top. You make a little hole, and you blow all the yolk out eventually somehow. And then you fill it, fill it with a little bit of uh, paper, and you grind it into someone's head. Have you ever done that? Like really get it in there so there's nice pieces, right? So I never complained about that. That's the best tradition. Oh! <laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen. Yay. Thank you, Lord. You provide. Okay. I was going to go with that, dude. That's awesome. Okay. That was good. I accidentally, I married a very, very meek and mild uh, missionary kid. And his dad, the first time I ground an egg in his head, I was like, this is not what you do to your father-in-law. Anyway, just a, just a tip. Those are the Christmas, the Easter traditions we love. We love. And maybe you haven't spent time thinking about the traditions that your family keeps, but now as we're getting older and we're adults, we get to think about them. We get to wonder why we do the traditions we do. For instance, as you look around, and it may look different than what you're used to, you are in a church. So I have news for you. This is an Easter tradition for a lot of people, being in church on Easter Sunday. As I talked about with my family, we didn't always go to church. There were bad years. There were years we did not go to church, but we went on Easter and we went on Christmas, right? That's how my family was because you get your outfit and good or bad, my dad is a softy when it comes to repentance and good or bad, my dad would be at the altar weeping his head off every Easter and, you know, enjoying Christmas also. So we did celebrate Easter in church and we celebrated Christmas in church. It was our Easter tradition. And this year my kids are attending two church services. So, you know, they're PKs, even if mom is the pastor. So yes, we're overly spiritualized, jamming it down their throats. 
Traditions, why do we do them? If you were to ask me, and if I were to write my textbook answer, I would say, duh, we keep traditions because it is our way of holding on to the past. We're trying to hold on to something sacred, right? But recently, a woman at my Bible study challenged me on this thought, and she said, I don't think that we do our traditions to hold on to the past. And I'm like, Cheryl, be quiet. That's not what I'm teaching on. But in reality, I listened to her. And Cheryl had an idea that made me think. And she said, I think we do traditions because we want to affect, with an E, affect the future. And that made me think, yeah, I think Cheryl is onto something. I think that is a new point of view. Maybe the reason that I hold on to tradition is because I value something that I want to see that has not yet happened in my future and in the future of other people. For instance, I bring my kids to church because I do want them to hear the true meaning of Easter. There's nothing wrong with getting a basket. There's nothing wrong with an Easter egg hunt. There's nothing wrong with fake chocolate. There's nothing even wrong with a new dress. But I want them to come to church because I want them to know what it is we're celebrating. I also celebrated yesterday in a really long and arduous Passover Seder, Messianic Seder. That is a lot of work. Four cups of wine, he remembers. Yes, I had four cups of wine yesterday. And I'll tell you, my husband was pouring them, so it was was extreme. (laughs) But... We do this because we want them to know and understand the past. But I also do this because I want them to understand and grow in the cultural significance, the symbolic significance, and the truth of why we celebrate what we celebrate. See, today we are celebrating Easter. And as I prepared for this message, I will tell you, I cheated. I was thinking of a catchy little easy way to tell you guys about Easter, a concise little thing. And I thought, well, what would Google say? So I Googled it. So I'm not going to take credit for this because this is pixels telling you the massive concept of Easter. So this is what I looked up. I basically put this in my Google and said, I don't know if you put it in your Google, but that's how I'm going to say it. I put this in my Google, which is better than my dad because he says Google. So I put, what are Christians celebrating on Easter? And this is what popped up. Resurrection! Yes! Shocker! This is exactly, I'm going to read this little part. This is what came up on, you know, secular Google. Many Christians celebrate Easter Sunday as the day of Jesus Christ's resurrection, which is written in the New Testament of the Christian Bible. So far, so good. I give that an A+. Yeah. Okay, good. According to the Gospel of John... What? You're not going to mention Mark, Matthew, Luke? Anyway, Google. According to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, Mary Magdalene and other women, just because they don't have names doesn't mean they weren't there. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb where Jesus was buried and found it empty. An angel told her that Jesus had risen, among other things. But okay, cool. Good job. So let's look at the scriptures surrounding these events. But before I begin on that, would you please join me in prayer? Father God, I want to thank you for this opportunity to be at Scum of the Earth Church, Father God, where so much of my own story and my own history and my own growth process has taken place. God, you are beautiful. You are sacred. You are continual. Um, Thank you, Father God, for this opportunity. I pray 
That, yeah, you would speak to our minds, speak to our hearts, but that you would speak to our spirits, Lord Jesus. Use your Holy Spirit to glorify yourself through this message. Amen. All right, so Google was right. I'm not going to dot Google any points. We are celebrating Jesus' resurrection from the grave, but it is so much more than just a Jesus one story. Why would it even matter? Why would we even celebrate it if it didn't really affect our own physical and spiritual lives? We'd be happy for Jesus and move on, right? But we know that resurrection ties in directly to our own lives. Matthew 28, I'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, and he's going to share this account. Starting in verse 1. This is NIV, by the way. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. So first of all, these women are going to the tomb, and the reason they're going there is because, one, all the men are hiding out. All the men are not to be seen. Men are supposed to be doing this stuff, but they're hiding because... Newsflash, Jesus has just been full-on killed by the bad guy, right? The religious guys have killed Jesus, and now all the people, the followers of Jesus are hiding because they really are physically scared. But the women who had been following Jesus around felt it very important and were compelled by love to continue a tradition of using spices to prepare the corpse. So they are going with their spices, and they are going to prepare a corpse of a person that they love. Someone they had followed, someone they had known. They're going to go do it. And when they get there, the tomb is rolled back, and an angel's just hanging on the rock. A little weird. Verse 3. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, interesting that Matthew would mention that there are guards there. That kind of tells us that there are witnesses here that aren't really part of the team, the A-team, the good guys, the people, the people that follow Jesus. These guys are just not even neutral, bad guys, and they're there. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. So the angel backs up the truth that Jesus was killed, dead. He doesn't say, I know you're here for Jesus, but he fainted. I know you're here for Jesus, but, you know, we faked it. He was crucified, full on gone. Verse 6, he is not here. He has risen just as he had said, which kind of makes me think, and this is me too, I'm not going to lie. They didn't believe him when he said he was going to rise. If you really believed him when he said, on the third day, I'm going to rise, and it had been something he said, would you go show up? Guys, I'm not that good of a believer. I would do it. (laughs) Be like, I saw him die. I saw him die. You can't convince me when I saw it. I understand that there are metaphors spiritually. I understand that people say, I'm going to rise. It means your spirit, right? I'll fly away. I'll fly away. But he was literal in this. And so the angel says, not here, not even fit, not even a body, not even here's his body for you attend to. But Jesus's spirit has gone to be with the Lord. Physically body, not there. So 
Verse 6, he is not here. He is risen just as he had said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to, to Galilee. There you will see him. Now maybe you would have gone home saying, uh-uh, I don't want to see him. He died and I believe, kind of believe in zombies. I saw him crucified. I saw him dead. I don't want to see him now. What's he going to look like? Anyway, but the women were excited. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Afraid, yet filled with joy. I love that Christian dichotomy. I get that as a believer. I'm always afraid when God says something, and yet I'm kind of filled with joy. And yet I'm kind of afraid. So they were afraid, filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly, Jesus met them. I don't think he said greetings. I actually don't like that they translated this into greetings. It sounds very formal. Greetings. I don't think so. But whatever kind of greeting he gave, might have said hi, hey, something. I don't think he said greetings. That's way too formal for this situation. But greetings, he said. You get the point. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. They were afraid and filled with joy because the tomb was empty. And if there's one thing I want for all of you as I look around, on this Easter Sunday, I want you to feel less empty. I was thinking about the word empty. The idea that the tomb is empty is a good thing. But often when we use the word empty, doesn't it sound like a negative word? You know, in today's society, we have more information than we know what to do with. I can stream tons of songs. I can watch tons of movies. I can look up tons of information on my phone. Which kind of make it awkward when I tell my parents that they wasted thousands of dollars on beautiful Encyclopedia Britannicas. What a waste, right? I have a car. I'm bragging now. I have a car, guys. I got money. I can go. I live in Colorado. I can go up the mountains. Are you really jealous now? I can do what I want. I have a lot of freedom. I can go to a brewery. I can go to the aquarium. Costs a little money, but I can go to the aquarium. My point in this is that you would think with all the luxuries I have, in the world's 1%, as I believe we are as Americans, we are not the 99. Sorry to bring it to you. The rest of the world, most of them are. We are the 1%. I have a lot of freedoms. And I still find myself at times feeling empty, sometimes physically empty. Maybe some of my neurons or my little electrodes, my little mental issues aren't happening, and I feel empty, and I have to go to the doctor and get medicine. That's happened to me. Maybe I feel emotionally empty, and so I have to vent and vent and vent and vent and vent or post something on you know, Instagram to get three, yeah, 300 likes so I can feel good about myself. That's emotional emptiness, how I kind of satiate that need. Ooh, nice selfie. Maybe I feel sexually empty, and we won't go there. Maybe I feel, I don't know, just empty sometimes. There's not enough. There's not enough to satisfy my needs, and I feel like an empty tomb. Maybe you feel empty because something that you wanted hasn't happened yet. Maybe you feel empty because there's a lot of student loans piling up or that relationship hasn't come through or that career hasn't come through or the career did come through and now it's all screwed up. Maybe you just feel empty because you finally are that awesome person. You finally got that body. You finally got that significant other and it's still not enough. That is reality for a lot of people. 
No offense, that's usually not the reality here at SCUM, but it could be. It could be your reality, just like me. A full tank of gas and nowhere that you want to go because you feel empty. We know that this life is a dichotomy. It's the already and the not yet. The beautiful phrase I learned from Mike Sayers. We have already received hope in Jesus, and yet we still struggle on this fallen crappy world in our fallen crappy bodies. It won't always be this way. Praise God for us because of resurrection. We will experience something new. If the resurrection took away death from Jesus, then I'm going to read to you a section of the Bible that talks about the death that will be taken from you and the hope you have not only in this physical earth, but in the next earth to come, eternal life. I'm going to be reading from Revelation, so hold on to your chairs. Yes, I'm going to that scary book, Revelation. Revelation 21, and I really like this. Verse 20, chapter 21, starting with verse 1. This is going to be talking about the newness, what we get to experience on the other side of life, on the other side Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. There's a very cheesy Christian movie out there called I Can Only Imagine. Anybody seen that or heard that song? I saw it this year. It was kind of an interesting idea. But the idea is, what would we say to Jesus when we really see him? And in the song, he says, will I dance? Will I be able to talk at all? This is talking about them. You know how you have, like, thoughts in your head and you're not allowed to fully explore them because they are sinful? You know how if your thought life was a house, there are rooms you should not go in? You know how there are rooms that are locked, throw away the key, closed in your mind, in your lusts, in your spiritual wants? We won't have to do that anymore. That is going to be all the doors will be open and Jesus and our own mind can go and wander and play and experience and not say that room is off limits. That memory is scary. This idea, this idea is sinful. We will go and we will be free in our own brain, in our own wants, in our own desires. We won't even have the audacity or ability to sin against God because we'll be free. But it's not yet. (laughs) We'll keep going with this. This is how it's going to be. And I heard, I already read this part. Okay, so they will be his people and God himself will be them and he will be their God. Line four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. God himself will be our comforter. It's not like you're going to go to your friend and hope that God hears. Or it's not like you're going to pray to a cross or to an altar or to a candle or pray in a church and say, you know, we always say this, God, if you're listening, as if he can't listen. He is going to be our comforter, our mother God, our father God, our girlfriend God, our friend God. 
He's going to be God right there with us, listening to us. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. Let's just stop there. I'm done for the night. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing for me. There will be no more death. Because I am, quite frankly, tired of death taking away people that I love, especially Denver. And I say this because it's been Denver this season in suicide. I'm tired of suicide. I'm tired of death taking people I love. I'm tired of hopelessness taking children. I'm tired, this sounds lame to say, but people that are persecuting people right now in the church in Sri Lanka and other places all over the world and killing people. I'm tired of death making people martyrs. I am tired of death dashing our hopes. I'm tired of babies being born, not even being alive. Not being born. You see what I'm saying? I'm tired of it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I don't like it. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And we do not comprehend this, friends. I'm saying this because this is the hope. We don't get it. We don't comprehend it. It's kind of like telling someone who has never seen fire, don't touch it even though it's pretty, it will burn you. And you're like, but it's beautiful, but it'll burn you. You don't get it. We don't get it. This is what it's going to be like. He who was seated on the throne said, and this is the key line here that I want you to, to grasp, right? We're going to go through this. This is the line. I am making everything new. And in the English Standard Version, it says, and I like this word, behold, I am making everything new. Behold, I am making everything new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. But sometimes we hear something like, behold, I'm making everything new. And it sounds really Christian-y, cliche. And it's hard to wrap our minds around. So I'm going to go through it word by word for one tiny moment in time. Behold. Look. Journal about this. Recognize. Remember. Remember. Remember your own story. Go back and read the journals. See what God did. Behold dialogue, check it out, explore, research, dig. That's what behold means. It doesn't just mean behold, I'm making everything. It means like do something with it, study it, look, search for it. Behold, I am making everything new. I am, I am the old Testament name for God. I am Jehovah. I am the provider. I am your banner. I am the Trinity. I am Jesus. I am the Holy spirit. One of those things sometimes people don't get when you grow up Holy roller Pentecostal is that we do a whole lot of Holy spirit, spirit stuff, but Jesus is like a weird guy to us. Depending on what kind of denomination you grew up in, you might have a beautiful reverence of God, but Jesus might be a weird guy. Or maybe you grew up with Jesus, 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 knowing the stories, but don't talk to me in tongues. That spirit kind of freaks me out. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, Jesus the does quirky stuff, Son, all those different characteristics together is God. I am. Not just one thing, three in one. Three operating as three different gods that want to relate with us. I love that. I love it. Behold, I am making all things new. 
making. Look at this building for a minute. Someone took time to make it. The floor was kind of made as a mess. I could imagine like a Pollock kind of flicking of paint, right? Glitter paint. Making means a process. This floor didn't look like this floor on the first day. It probably didn't look like this floor on the second day. It probably, I think the guy who lived here, the first original artist, lived in this, and this was his art studio, this room, for four years before we bought it from him, and this floor started to look like this. Making, it is a process. It is a creating. It is a growing. It is a strengthening and informing and inspiring. Consider a toddler. Look at this beautiful little kid here. We're not going to expect her to behave like an adult. Please sit down and listen and take notes. No, because she is in the making. Why do we think that we have to have all our crap together even if we're an adult? We are in the making. We are growing, right? We are growing. We are in process. And so with toddlers, Danae, I'm getting nervous up here. Okay, no. Um, just like with toddlers, there's a con- a constant redirecting. Let me just say that for you adults. There is a constant redirecting that happens for you that God is doing. And he doesn't go too far. You think your leash is far. It's there. Trust me. You'll, you'll know when it comes. It'll usually come in the, in the form of a text from me. Sorry to those of you that I text all the time. What are you doing? That's a leash from God. Sorry. Okay. We are being redirected. Thank God that we are being redirected. Thank God that we are not yet done, that we are being molded, right? Faith is fluid. Faith is fluid. I was such an idiot when I was young. I remember being 20 years old being like, I could write down all my beliefs that I'm going to stand on the rest of my life. Yeah, right. I haven't been married. I haven't had kids. I hadn't met Mike Sayers. hadn't met you guys. You guys are informing me, Right. Behold, I am making all things new. Now, that's a word that could be good or bad, new. New means, well, it's a creative word. It's a pregnant word, literally, right? New. Something out of something else. Something new that hasn't been before. When was the last time that you thought you could be something new? Really be something new. You may think and want your situation to be new. Wow, it'd be cool to live in a better apartment. Wow, it'd be cool to live in a suburbs. Not. It's kind of cool. Wow, it'd be cool to do this. Wow, it'd be cool to do that. Something new. But what about you being new? When was the last time you put your hope and your prayer and your faith in being new? Have you ever seen a caterpillar on the sidewalk crawling really slowly? And even when you put your foot up to step on a caterpillar, it doesn't move. Have you ever seen a butterfly act like that? Butterflies don't crawl on the ground waiting to be stepped on. They have metamorphosized. I don't know if that's a word. Metamorphosized. Is that a, I don't, scientists help me. They have been metamorphosized. Michael vouches. New, new, not what you were. Not even just the growing process, but full on Ice to water to evaporation new. Thank God. Easter reminds us that we are being made new. Easter reminds us that we are a process. Do you know that all four books of the Gospels are not the same? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these guys are on my nerves because they always talk about different things. And then that leads people to saying, well, there's a lot of inconsistencies in the Bible. I just can't get behind that. 
Fine, fine. There's inconsistencies in all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? But each of them, in great detail, describe the week leading up to Jesus going to the cross. In great detail. I'm talking about, I mean, if you're Catholic, you know the details on the details on the details. Have you ever seen the 12? They made 12 stations of the cross. For, for, you know, most Protestants, it's like, and then he walked to the cross. He may have tripped. Twelve stations for Catholics. And you meditate on them. And you think about them. And there are people's names given. And he fell. And there was wine. And there was water. And you know why? That was a long process that it took to getting Jesus to the cross. And then, once he's on the cross, they just don't say, And then he gave up his spirit and died. There are a lot of details about his death. When did he breathe? What was offered to him? What did they gamble for? All these details upon details upon details told about Jesus as he's giving up his spirit and as his death happened. His pain, his behaviors, all recorded. So think about how long all the people who followed him had to mourn. We're talking about something new there. Just a week earlier, we celebrated for us um, Palm Sunday. And for them, it would have been like when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and he was this awesome guy. He was this king. He looked tough. He looked masculine. And they were probably thinking, you know, this is the guy. Because long time ago, we were slaves. And God was strong, and he flexed his spiritual muscle, and he opened the waters of the Red Sea, and we conquered, and we got free, and we got our promised land. And here is Jesus, and now we're set. He's going to do the same thing for us. And now he's on a cross one week later. One week later, how has their thought process changed? Fail. We use the word fail like a whole sentence, like a whole point. Fail. It's not going to happen. He's going to die. This is, we put all of our chips, all of our eggs in one basket, guys. You learn never to do that. Judge Judy says, don't have just one kid. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And they did. They put all of their spiritual hopes into Jesus. And now he's dead. They're remembering the defeat. And yet before Jesus went through this, he tried to rock their worlds and he tried to grow them and he tried to change their point of view. And one of the things he did while he was alive, man down, one of the things he did while he was alive, he put on a slave's apron and he washed their feet. And as he washed their feet, he was teaching them, I do this to the least of you. Do this for one another. And so he was showing them along the process as he came to the cross, think different. You think that I'm going to succeed in being this spiritual muscle, this awesome conqueror. I'm just going to fight every battle for you. I'm telling you, the battle you have to fight is the battle and the urge that you have that you don't want to wash someone else's feet. And I'll tell you, that battle, I would way rather fight somebody I mean, I'm a little Chicana. I would rather fight somebody than wash their feet sometimes. If you've ever felt that, then that is the spiritual battle within you that God is telling you to fight. 
I'll tell you what, we don't like to think of Jesus on the cross. There are books now and theologians that are backpedaling and messing with the story of the cross as we speak right now all over the place because it helps them sleep better at night. I don't like to say this, but people are messing with the cross and what it means and what it did and what it signified because they are uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus dying for their sins. Well, maybe that's the point. They would like to think that it was a hoax. The resurrection was a hoax. Let me give you a tiny clue how we know it wasn't a hoax. Do you think that these men would have let women be the recipients of a message from an angel? Not going to happen. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John back then in those days would not have put women as the first people on the scene because it might not have been deemed credible. They wouldn't have put women as the ones brave enough to bring the spices, basically, you know, pointing them out that they're in hiding. They wouldn't have put women as receiving the message from the angels because they didn't do that kind of stuff back then traditionally. So we know from that one tiny hint that there has to be credibility to this. But I'm not here to tell you all of the reasons why it is credible. I'm going to tell you in this message that it actually matters to your life, that it actually really matters to your life. If we believe that death is irreversible, our religion is a fake. Our religion doesn't matter. Our religion does nothing for us if we believe that death is the end. There's no hope in that. But I choose to believe that Jesus was resurrected and that so too death will be reversible for us. There's a start over, a do-over. You know if something electronic isn't working, you turn it off and turn it on. We have that and God's going to, you know, start over with you. Your story's not done. He'll just unplug you for a second. He can do that. You are being made new when he turns your program off, turns it back on. What was that called? Startup? No, there's some word. You remember when Apple, that sound, right? This is the concept of atonement. The concept of atonement, the word atonement, the idea of atonement means Jesus died for our sins. And again, like I'm saying, in 2019, the school of thought, that is not a very popular opinion, you guys. We have moved on from it. We have moved on from atonement. I don't need, this is not me literally talking, this is me talking for the voice of the person that says, I don't need atonement. I don't need atonement because guess what? I don't like the idea of God being an angry, masculine man who killed his son on behalf of my sins. That is not what's happening at the cross. When you do that, when you say, or when they say, when anyone says that God is this angry, mean man of a God that pretty much killed his son. First of all, that goes against every single thing that you see in scripture from the beginning of love, of cultivation, of God mothering, of God creating, of God sacrificing. Would a good and loving creator do this? No. Second of all, did you forget that Jesus is part of the Trinity? Jesus, Holy Spirit, God together? Jesus cannot be killed by his father in this way. 
That's not what's happening. And yet the new school of thought is challenging this because they are offended. And personally, they have a hard time saying Jesus died for my sins. I don't like it either, guys. I preached on this, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. I don't know. It's scum of the earth. You can look it up online. And I said then, this is pathetic. Jesus on the cross is offensive. It's pathetic. I don't like it. It's ugly. And I know it's because of my sin. And that's why I cower and I think it's gross. But why would I want to take away the atonement when I need it like I need food? Why would I want to take away the fact that I can be forgiven, that when, Je- when Jesus did that, God sees Jesus when he sees me. Yeah, that's uncomfortable for me. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. It feels uncomfortable. But I need it every hour. The truth is this. Jesus was not punished by God the Father for our sins. Jesus, as part of the Trinity, understood what was happening with the Father. He is one with the Holy Spirit. When he went to the cross... He had accepted it. Let's look at Matthew 26, 36 through 46, NIV. I'm not going to read it all. I'm actually going to paraphrase. I'm going to actually, I'm going to start into, yeah, I'll do it. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, Stay here and keep watch with me. So yes, he is struggling. He doesn't like it. This is not plan A for him. This is not what he wants. He is still human. He is still a man, even though he's God. He knows there's going to be pain. He knows all these things, right? Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. So this is him. He is one with the Father, but he's also praying to the Father. The dichotomy of the Trinity. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So right there is a clue. As you will. Do you see how he is trusting more than we can usually say? Trusting God with his fate. Do you see how he is at peace with that situation? There are times when you pray for something, usually it's, God, give me more patience. And then right after it slipped out of your mouth, you're like, no, 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 no. Maybe it was one of those things. Like God, Jesus was like, not my will, but your will. No, no, reverse. But he did it. He prayed for it. And I I tend to think that spiritually he meant it. Then he returned. Now look at new change. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. You know, this is after their Passover. So they did have four cups of wine. So I'm going to give them a little bit of credit here because after my four cups of wine, I was super tired last night. And he says to them, couldn't you men keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Do you think he might've been talking about himself there? I never thought of that till just right now. The spirit is willing, but maybe the flesh is weak, even for Jesus. Maybe he's saying, I just told God, do to me what you want. But really in my heart and in my physical body, I'm saying, God, I'm talking about these guys, but maybe I'm talking about me. Maybe I'm asking you to spare me physical pain. He went away a second time and he prayed, my father. This is relationship. My father. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
that does not look like a victim to me. That looks like a loving God. That looks like a very loving God. And I don't like it. I do and I don't. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed the third time. Dude, he is really messing with God. He's like, three times, I'm going to ask you because I'm not satisfied. Or maybe because I'm working this out of my heart. Maybe sometimes we pray three times because we already know the answer, but it's for us, right? Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? And now I see a resolute Jesus. Look at what he says. Look, this is new Jesus standing up, ready to go. Look, the hour has come. He's not even in custody. He's choosing the hour has come. He is proclaiming the hour has come. Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And this is where I see Jesus go toward his captors, go to his betrayer, go to the process of the cross that he is going to do for us. You see, we are going to have to reconcile this truth to our own lives and to our own theology because it does matter. If we can't think of, if we cannot, no, sorry. We cannot, not if, we cannot think of Jesus as a victim. He can't be your God if he's a victim. He can't be your God if he's weak. And God can't be your God if he is unloving. So we have to fix our theology if we have an issue with this. Jesus is the savior that we need. I know it's uncomfortable to think of Jesus on the cross. As I said before, I grew up going to a Pentecostal church. And one of the things that we did, (laughs) we would on Easter sometimes put on an Easter play at the event center across the street. And believe it or not, but there was a time in my high school life when I dabbled in goth. Oh, yes. I wore a Susie's in the Banshee shirt. Nice black. Jason, you would have loved this. Black all over my eyes. I would put like a little bit of white eyeshadow so I looked dead. My brother got really excited. He thought we had powdered donuts. I was so offended. This is a true story. Anyway, so we were into goth, and it was time for the big Easter play. If your church ever put on this Easter play, you know what role people are going to get. The big muscular men of the church are going to be the Roman guards, right? And the hipster-looking, skinny, wafy, goatee-growing youth pastor is going to be Jesus. That could be you, Nat. So, right. Uh, Yeah, wafy's okay. So anyway, this this Easter play is going to go on, and I'm really into skinny puppy. I'm really into front 242. I'm really into goth. And my brother and I decide we're going to be the demons, We're going to be the demons. And we put fishnets on our arms. And we're downstairs in the green room at the event center. And we're getting stoked. And we kind of did this the bad way. And I do not advise this. Listening to a lot of evil music to get ready to play the part of a demon is not a good idea. Kind of weird. You shouldn't mess, mess with that. But anyway, so it's our turn to go in, right? And we walk up the stairs. And you can hear Carmen's the champion. And it's blaring, right? Yeah, true story. And I'm stoked because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like new wave dance with the smoke and the fog machine. And I see the youth pastor as Jesus on the cross and whoa, hell waterworks. You can't be tough. You can't be a demon. You cannot be you when you see Jesus on the cross. Something just takes it from you, right? And for me, every year going to that stupid, stupid Easter play, as cheesy as it was, it became real. Jesus was Jesus, no matter what guy was Jesus. 
And for that moment when I was in the crowd, I would feel repentant. I would feel uncomfortable. I would feel new. I would feel grown. I would feel grateful that Jesus did this for me. I still feel that because I need that. And as I'm telling you this, I'm being made new. It gets me. Because I know that Jesus loves women. Jesus loves immigrants. Jesus loves enemies. Jesus loves broken. Jesus loves gay. Jesus loves ugly. Jesus loves greed. Jesus loves. And if that's the whole point, if he came shouting that message of love, and if we killed him, we screwed up. And if we can't accept that he did that for us, something is wrong with us. And it's usually called pride. And I usually have a lot of it. I don't like to feel worthy of that kind of love. And I often don't feel, feel worthy of that kind of love. I do a lot of clergy work at the women's prison now um, on Smith Road. And it takes everything in me not to stare and gawk. We have this phrase, listen, listen, love, love. And it basically means stay stoic, stay cool. Because what you're going to see and what you're going to hear is a lot. It's kind of gnarly. And one of the things is I try to stay stoic and stay cool when I see women with all these knife marks. And they may have them in their arms, and they're, they're messages and they're symbols of self-hate. And they may have them on their necks. Some of the women in there have admitted to me of trying to take their lives eight times, different ways, taking their babies' lives. There are deep scars. But you know what the difference between those women are and us? It's not the scars, guys. It's the fact that they can't hide them. They're given a T-shirt. We can get a flannel. We can get a sweatshirt. They have T-shirts, so they don't physically get to hide their scars, right? So they're unfazed at this point. They have to show them. They have to live in a different world and in a different life than we are accustomed to. Imagine what it would be like if everybody could see your spiritual scars. Imagine if people could look at you and see how you've hurt yourself. Imagine if people could look at you and see your self-hate, your self-doubt, your uncomfortability, your dissatisfaction. Or imagine if they could see the deep, disgusting scars of where people hurt you. They're, they're emotional. They're in there. We see them sometimes because you act out crazy. But what if we could physically see how people had hurt you? They would see deep scars. The resurrection is a factual event, a scandalous, miraculous event that makes all things new. We cannot screw that up. When Jesus returned after his resurrection, he came back with his scars. Isn't that weird? He didn't have to. He could have come back with a beautiful new body, but he had the holes. He had the scars. I wonder why. I wonder why when he appeared to them, he came with his physical scars. And I think maybe, maybe, partly to say, this is really me. This isn't a different dude. You recognize me because you saw me being hurt. But also maybe he kept them as a symbol to them saying, I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to be kicked. I know what it's like to be pained. I know what it's like to be stabbed. And you can trust me because I identify Jesus' scars are a message to us that he has been there. And you know what? This is the cool thing. 
People didn't love him any less because he had nasty scars. Peter saw him and recognized him, jumped in the water with his robe on and grabbed him. The women worshipped him. His scars didn't make him any less lovable. And the same is true of us. I know you have deep scars from others and from your own doing. I know our minds are broken. I know our bodies are broken. I know we are constantly being subjected to our own sins and the sins of others. I know our appetites are insatiable. That's why this is the weird thing, right? So thinking about sins, it's not just a big list. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. Your condition is wrought with sin, no offense, but it just is. And the beautiful thing about that is we are free today to step out of that and understand that Jesus atoned for that sinful condition. He is making us spiritual people. And now when we see each other and when people start to act a little weird in our community, we can say they're just messing up because they have that spiritual scar. We can still love them. We can still run to them. We can still breakfast with them. You know, Jesus was breakfasting with all these scars. We can breakfast with one another, right? When Jesus sees us, he runs to us, robe and all in the water and hugs us. We're now going to do something that is considered sacred and considered beautiful and considered a connection. And it is Holy Communion. What this means is that we remember what Jesus did on the Last Supper, that he broke his body for us. So we use juice here instead of wine. And the way we do it is we dip some of the bread into the juice. If you aren't ready to make that kind of commitment or statement today, that is absolutely okay. Um, I didn't ask beforehand, but I will be over there if you want to come pray with me by the green cabinet. (laughs) Um, If I can get a couple other people to come over there and pray for people if people would like. Um, Let's pray. God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the work you've done in my life, for growing me, for making me new, for redirecting me like a toddler. I want to thank you, Father God, for the way you work in my life through the Holy Spirit so that I know that you see Jesus' sacrifice when you see me. I want to thank you for even through the Holy Spirit letting me feel the pangs of hurt from my own sin because I'm not ready to be let go over to it, God. In Romans 1, you say that if we sin so much, you might let us go to it. I don't want to let go. Keep me tethered to you, Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, Father God, that whatever they're going through, whatever any of us are going through, whatever scars we're too scared to show, I pray that we would find people to communicate that with God. And I thank you that on Easter you are risen and we will eternally be in a place where we will be without death, without fear, without judgment. Hallelujah. Amen.